we all have various uh, sub-personalities. No, nobody has a full, complete uh, personality that is uh, essentially a whole. We have various parts, and many psychological systems engage with these parts so that we can develop meaningful ways to acknowledge and integrate the different parts of our selves or our psyche. In the normal human makeup, there will be an observer part, which is located, if you care, you might not, in the temporal parietal lobe. It's the place where you observe all your actions, but it doesn't actually speak or do anything. It's just a observing quality. Then there's a manager parts, which are left hemispheric, that help you survive and keep track of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, projects in your life. That's the professional part that learns all the rules of uh, work environments, self-reliance, uh, dealing with and put and uh, with, with problems. Uh, uh, there's the self-soothing parts in the striatal left and right parietal dorsolateral regions, which is the things that when you do yoga, or ride a bike, or run, the things where your mind shuts off all the self-conscious parts and you're just present doing something. Gardening, playing an in instrument. Self-soothing is a very valuable part of the human experience. There are the worrying parts, ventral medial parts of the brain that worry about you, what other people think about you, what's going to happen to me in my future, what's the matter with me, why am I different from everybody else, the self-centered part. And then there are the binge parts, the addicts that kick in when we want to avoid emotional pain, and so we binge eat, we binge watch Netflix, we binge shop, we binge binging, binging. And that's nucleus accumbens and the uh, mesolimbic structures of the brain. And then there's the exile parts, which are the emotional pains we don't like to think about. We compartmentalize. They're held largely in the right orbital frontal. So we have all these different parts. But hopefully, if you're not in, uh, if you've not been too traumatized by extremely wounding experiences in your life, you have. Uh, an awareness of all these different parts of yourself and if somebody says hey the other night I saw you and you were doing X Y or Z you would be able to recall it you would not it would not sound like some you, they were talking about someone else you would not have completely dissociated from these activities or parts of yourself so to that degree even though we might have parts that are we're over reliant on our managers we're aware of all the different parts, even the, hopefully the wounded parts, the feelings and experiences of rejection, abandonment, loneliness, etc. And so we have the thing that keeps it all working together is a part of the brain called the left hippocampus and Broca's region, which creates an ongoing narrative of who I am, what has happened in my life. It creates the story of me. And to the degree that that works is to the degree we have somewhat of an integrated experience. But there are in life traumas that happen where we have either near-death experiences, extremely sudden and shocking disconnections, extremely uh, out-of-the-blue, unexpected events where we feel deeply threatened. 
the earlier and younger we are, the more they can happen in even run-of-the-mill situations. A child can have a traumatic response to simply um, uh, uh, strange behavior by the caregiver. By the time we're adults and we've, uh, we've essentially, hopefully, encountered more and more uh, experience with different wide variety of behaviors, uh, we are less likely, hopefully, to be traumatized. But uh, trauma can happen any time in life. Now, it's very important to define what trauma is, because it's a word that is, uh, tends to be overused, and like depression, when we devalue the world, word by overusing it, it tends to lose its efficacy. What is trauma? There are three emotional systems that a human being has. The first is the... Uh, emotional system, the highest, which is our ability to convey emotional content through facial expressions, tone of voice, and body language. I can convey to you when I'm happy or sad, lonely, filled with fear, filled with frustration by the tone of my voice and my, the expressions on my face. When I'm doing that, I'm using the higher vagal vagus nerves, and I'm using my right hemisphere. And that's a very advanced practice. That's what allows emotion regulation, allows us to bond and feel seen. To the degree that I have an experience that is more threatening and I don't believe I can get regulation by connecting with another human being, I'll use my fight or flight system, which is uh, the midbrain, the mammal part of the brain, which is essentially run or confront and fight for one's life or to get rid of a threat. While we do that, hopefully we are conscious, we're aware of what we're doing, and afterwards we can narrate the experience. So even though the sympathetic nervous system in this case is engaged, we can still afterwards explain, hey, somebody attacked me on my way home, I fought them off, they ran away, or somebody attacked me and I ran away before they could you know, uh, punch me or do something. So after we engage the fight or flight, we still can integrate it into our experience. We still know what happened. But the third kind of uh, emotional system is what happens when we are in trauma, and that's called freeze. Freeze doesn't use the sympathetic. It actually uses the parasympathetic, and it actually is the old vagal system. Essentially what happens is it floods the brain with acetylcholine, cortisol, adrenaline, so much neurotransmitters all at once that it shuts down all the frontal lobe, all the executive function, and it shuts down fight or flight, and we go into an immobilized state. Time, if we experience time, goes into a very frozen, it's like we're not present, uh, things unfold, if they unfold at all, if we're at all conscious, they unfold in, in almost slow motion. And during freeze, what happens is the left, especially, is so immobilized that there is no language, no left hippocampal function, so afterwards there's no way to integrate what happened into the rest of our lives. And the right hemisphere's frontal functioning, which is emotional, is not functioning either. So we are emotionally numb, and we are also incapable of making any sense of what's happening. The only part of the brain that's happening during freeze is essentially the right midbrain, the right amygdala.
sadly enough, it would be okay if during a horrible situation when there's sudden violence, when we are suddenly confronted with the unthinkable, when there is a life or death situation where we are suddenly abandoned by somebody we've come to depend on, where we're caught off guard by uh, information that essentially deeply affects our survival, uh, it would be okay if we just couldn't remember any of it. But unfortunately, the right amygdala, which is still functioning, is capable of forming memories. But the memories are very, very unstructured memories. They are what's known as flashbulb memories. There's no narrative to them. There's just a bunch of very cut-off, quick, frozen images that have no story to them. But they are filled with a sense of... Uh, they activate, once again, that reptilian brainstem. So when we are uh, reactivated or triggered, the we see the images... And then there's the physiological response of freeze, which is the heart starts pounding, the, literally the, the stomach tightens, people can even lose control of their bowels. Some people will get uh, other uh, kinds of abdominal uh, extreme pain. We freeze, dissociate. So... Um, Traumatized people or people who've gone through extremely painful experiences wind up with two completely different personalities. The most dominant is a functional one that still has a lot of the different parts that we had before a trauma. We still have the managers, the, the self-soothing, hopefully, but they're left with a functional personality that is very unstable. And... What happens is when anything at all reminds us of the trauma, the traumatic events, people are what's called triggered. And during a triggering, they go into one out of two states. Hypervigilance is when there is a sudden state of frozen alertness, looking for a threat, looking for an attacker, looking for something really bad to happen. And during Hypervigilance, people are not aware of what is being said to them. Essentially, they are hyperventilating. Their entire body goes into a tense, defended, startled state. It's extremely uncomfortable to be hypervigilant. It's when children have grown up in deeply abandoning childhood situations and they are prone to hypervigilance in adult life, they will, in certain situations, when they need to be vulnerable and state their needs and relationships, they will literally freeze, they won't be able to speak, they will be monitoring excessively the facial expression of the person they're in the relationship with or the conversation with. And the other state they can, we can go into is what's known as uh, dissociation, which could uh, contain derealization or depersonalization. Derealization is essentially when the way you perceive reality significantly shifts. Other people's eyes get bigger. Other people's faces get bigger. There's a sense of dizziness, a sense of uh, suddenly you're looking at the world through a fish-eyed lens. Uh, more common is depersonalization where people feel out of their body. They're present 
they're having a conversation or they're in a social situation, but suddenly they're no longer in their body, they no longer feel their feelings, they no longer can act or speak, they're like an observer drifting above themselves. So if you've ever had that state, I certainly have, growing up in a violent household, in certain situations around people that are men that are unpredictably and violent, uh, which I used to get myself into quite a lot as an early member of the New York hardcore scene, we tend to gravitate back towards people who remind us of the traumas and situations that activate traumas because we build up so many uh, coping strategies around it. Um, essentially, the when we're when we are in this traumatized personality, this other shadow self, this haunted. So, we not only hold the flashbulb memories of what happened during the trauma, but we hold the survival, the survival impulses that were cut off. When people freeze, they are generally frozen right when they were about to run or fight or scream or yell. So very often, not only in a trauma personality, there's the memory, the flashbulb images, but there's also this impulse to run or fight has been cut off. And so when people relive trauma events and dreams, they very often start feeling themselves acting out the action that was cut off. They'll try to run, but they can't run. They'll try to fight, but they can't fight. They'll try to scream and warn somebody, but they can't get out a word. Because not only is the images tucked in there, but all of the, the uh, actions that were cut off. Essentially, to conclude with the bummer part of tonight's talk before we move on to the hopeful part, <laughs> uh, is the uh, when people have had any tra trauma situations or extremely emotionally wounding situations, they develop triggers and phobias, anything that reminds them or activates hypervigilance or depersonalization. They will find extremely uncomfortable and they will generally avoid if they don't construct their life. Two responses are possible. We either can be like a soldier who re-enlists after they see their buddies blown up in front of them because the trauma is so uh, uh, ongoing that they can't make sense of any other situation. And that's one possible response to recreate the trauma. A more likely response is to do what's known as avoidance coping, which is avoid anything that triggers the PTSD trauma response. And so people will avoid any romantic situations. They will avoid, after they've been mugged, they'll avoid going outside. If they're in a car accident, they'll avoid getting in a car. If they're in a sudden, uh, they're about to get married and suddenly out of the blue, their partner cheats on them and uh, abandons them, then they will avoid romantic uh, connections from that point on. People will either go back into the trauma or they will avoid anything that triggers any any uh, hypervigilance or dissociation. Fortunately, in the last 20 years, thanks to actually NYU, which in addition to gentrifying the Lower East Side, buying up all of the housing and displacing low-income families. Uh, at least what they've done is brought us uh, Joseph Ledoux, who is one of the most, uh, along with his team there, 
has done more to address trauma and healing trauma than virtually any other group outside of Bessel van der Kolk's group um, and Peter Levine's group of research, somatosensory research. So what they found, what Joseph Ledoux and his people like Karim Nadir and Dana Schiller uh, have found is that when memories are being formed, even traumatic memories, there's a point where they are, uh, one, they're not consolidated. And if you can get to somebody right after a trauma, before the memories are consolidated, the brain has to actually synthesize proteins to form memories. So what they do is they inject people with antibiotics, which prevent memories from being formed. Yes, we are now in the age of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. <laughs> Uh, but more likely, or B, what they can do is uh, tr uh, stop the solidification of the uh, trigger with the freeze response. And the way you do that is when somebody has been in a car crash or has been violently beaten up, violently attacked, if you get to them soon enough, you give them significant amounts of beta blockers, which prevent the sympathetic nervous system from being, act or the parasympathetic both, from being activated, and it stops the formation of the trauma response. So you can literally do that and prevent. Um, and they actually, uh, in advanced societies like Sweden, when uh, people are in car crashes, they get them to the hospital and they give them beta blockers or will give them uh, anxiolytics like Ativan to prevent uh, PTSD from forming. But we are, of course, living in a third world country, so um, we don't care about uh, healing evil. So, um, thankfully, though, they've found that there are ways to treat trauma in a meaningful way. Um, the goal with treating trauma is to do two things. One, get people to be able to narrate the missing chapters of their lives, to move the content which is buried in the right amygdala in the midbrain, to be able to talk about the, the flashbulb memories without having the freeze hypervigilant response so that they can turn it into a narrated part of their life where they can make sense of what happens, what happened to them. This is key to healing is because so long as the trauma is stored in the right hemisphere it remains timeless it never goes away and it uh, it attaches itself to more and more triggers so eventually we can be triggered by more and more daily events until we essentially when the content is active we can actually talk about it and integrate it into meaning systems of the left hemisphere the second thing we want to do is activate right hemispheric emotions, higher emotions, where people can actually cry or feel sad or express the emotions associated with the trauma. During traumas, again, all frontal lobe functioning is switched off, so people don't have an ability to narrate what happened or even have an emotional response. They'll suddenly go numb when they talk about horrific events. I've worked with people who have had just the most horrific sexual abuse in family systems, just the most horrific abuse systems in their lives. But when they talk about it, they go into this eerie 
completely emotionally dissociative state where they talk about it, but there's no emotional content. And the goal is to uh, reintegrate what has happened, not just in narrating, but also the emotional response. When we can do this, we no longer have the shutdown dissociative PTSD uh, reactions. So how do we do this? Well, there's a number of different modalities out there. Perhaps the most uh, popular one today is the psychotherapeutic modality EMDR, which stimulates people right-left, the idea being that it activates both hemispheres, and they get people to narrate or talk about the flashbulb memories that they have. And the idea is that in the interaction with the therapist, the person can develop the ability to increasingly fill in the blanks of what happened to them during traumatic experiences. EMDR has a lot to say for it. Um, it works with a lot of people that have, where other treatments like CBT, DBT, etc. have failed miserably. It, uh, the parts of it that uh, uh, aren't so good, which is one, nobody knows how it works. There's no understanding of why this works. Uh, EMDR people believe that in the right and left stimulation that they are mimicking what happens in REM sleep when people relive traumas but without having the same response. Uh, maybe so. Nobody can prove that that's the case. fMRI scans don't back that up. So there's, nobody knows why it works. And B, in my experience with people, it either works or it doesn't. So if you're interested in ever doing EMDR, book about four to six appointments, no more, and see if it works for you. And then if it doesn't, don't, don't waste the money. Because if it doesn't start showing effects pretty quickly, then you're just one of the people that the modality doesn't help. That doesn't mean it's a bad modality. It just is a hit or miss modality, as most EMDR therapists will acknowledge. A second is a CBT process called exposure therapy, and that was really developed by a lot of therapists, including Dana Schiller, and she's at Mount Sinai, and she did this amazing study where she somehow talked 60 people into, and get this, I don't know how anybody would agree to do this, receive electric shocks when they looked at red circles. <laughs> Just when people said, hey, we're doing this study, we're going to shock you when you look at red circles. I mean, what the fuck, you know? I'm not going to do that. No, thank you. But people for the, in the name of science will pretty much volunteer to do anything. Anyway, you do that enough, and the next day, the next few days, when you test them, when they see a red circle, they will have a immediate physiological autonomic nervous system response. They, even though they know the red circles are not going to give them shocks anymore, they will still have the shock response. But with exposure therapy, if you keep on showing them the red circles, over time, they will stop having the response. In fact, in her research, she found that as short of uh, time as 30 minutes, you can completely undo um, a response. I had some really awful, when I was uh, 
training myself to learn how to skateboard when I was in my 40s. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> Humiliating, emotionally scarring, but not only that, it fucking hurt. And I essentially almost completely fractured my wrist. But each time I would just train myself to get back on immediately because I knew that if there was any... Uh, if I slept between it, I would form the, the uh, emotional association. I wouldn't be able to get back on the skateboard. So it, the sooner you get back to doing something that has started to form a trigger response, the better, especially if it's something that you have to do in your daily life. So obviously, if it's something that's very rare, you might not decide to bother with it. If, for example, you know, uh, in paragliding, you have a near-fatal accident, you don't necessarily want to go paragliding again. <laughs> Because you could live your life without doing that. But if it's riding a bicycle, my suggestion, or uh, riding a skateboard or something that you really want to do, your best bet is to get on as soon as possible so that you do exposure uh, therapy. But for tonight, what we're going to be doing is uh, uh, mindfulness or insight uh, he, uh, approach to um, addressing traumatic and emotional wounds. And essentially what this does is it does a slightly different approach that's very interesting. Uh, mindfulness allows us to essentially, while we learn to deactivate the autonomic uh, defense, the hypervigilance associated with a trigger, we if we learn the technique of breathing really long, slow out-breaths, relaxing the shoulders, softening the belly, so that you're deactivating the old vagus nerve, then what we do is we purposely bring up unpleasant uh, triggering memories or triggering associations. And while you bring this up, you, while preventing the trauma response, you allow yourself to feel the emotional response and to be able to start in your head narrating what happened. So what we're literally doing in the meditation is, re, uh, is reclaiming emotionally exiled parts of our experience. Now obviously, in this situation, I would encourage you not to do something that's associated with uh, a trauma that you suspect is so likely to re-trigger you that it would be better to address it in a therapeutic relational modality, i.e. working with a therapist, I would encourage you to do that. But if there are secondary traumas associated with abandonments, painful losses, things that you believe that you can start to work with, then this would be the perfect meditation to do this. And again, you'll see that what we're doing is we are preventing the old vagus nerve from kicking in, but we're still holding the flashbulb memories in place so that we can begin to narrate what happened and have a higher emotional response so that we can essentially integrate buried parts of our experience into our adult personality psyches. So I hope that made some sense. Maybe it flew over everybody's heads, but uh, in other way, we'll we'll give it a shot. We'll see if it's worth your while. Wow. So find a really comfortable seated position.
And during this meditation, what you really want to do is to be as relaxed and comfortable as you can. And again, when it comes to the content we're working with, let's, let's try to work with something that we believe we can hold without it causing too much distress. Stuff that's already coming up is a good indication. So closing the eyes and let's take a few breaths in unison to start the meditation. So a nice full in-breath through the nose and lifting your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears, holding the shoulders up, and uh, dropping them and relaxing them, pulling them back. For the second in-breath, pulling in the abdomen as tight as you can, holding it tight, tight, and then a long, smooth out-breath. softening the belly and then finally with the third breath squinching all the other muscles the tightening the toes buttocks fists and especially the jaw the micro muscles around the eyes squinching the forehead a tight 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 face and then breathe out relax So for the first part of this meditation, we're just going to do a concentration meditation just to create a very settled state, which is appropriate for the second part of the meditation. So see if you can bring to your attention an ongoing sensation that you can hold in the front of awareness. The obvious would be the sensations of the breath. For example, the expansion and contraction of the musculature in the chest, the abdominal area of the body, air entering and exiting the tip of the nose, a feeling of the inhalation or exhalation in the back of the throat. Perhaps the shoulders. There's no right or wrong place.
If you work with the breath, just to employ at first a very simple counting strategy. As usual, I recommend thinking one with the in-breath, two with the out, three with the next inhalation, four with the following exhalation. When you reach five, start counting back down. So we're counting from one to five and back down with one, three, and five always on the in-breath. If you don't want to work with the breath, that's fine. You can just repeat a very simple metaphrase. May I feel peaceful. May I feel at ease. May all beings feel peaceful and at ease. It doesn't have to be those words. It could be any that denote setting an intention for developing states of calm, tranquility. Be creative. Find words that resonate for you. Or you can just allow the mind to stay present and to embrace all of the ongoing sensations of the present. So hearing the sound of the fan, Noting lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Feeling ambient body sensations contact with the cushion. Hearing various sounds around the room. Or finally, if there's a very simple image you'd like to hold in awareness, something that doesn't change, a candle flickering in darkness, a location you know very well. So all of those are appropriate. And in this practice, don't try to push away anything that's arising. So thoughts or memories or stuff is appearing. Just allow it to be in the background and just keep in the foreground of awareness your concentration object. If you find that you, before you realized it, climbed aboard a thought and it's pulled you away into a inner virtual reality, just return to the actual sensations of the present moment without any judgment, without any criticism of your practice at all. Self-criticism and self-judgment have no role whatsoever in <coughs> spiritual practice. What you want to cultivate is appreciation of your effort, just simply sitting and becoming aware of internal sensations has been shown to be a significant 
psycho and physiological value and benefit.
So at this point, you can allow whatever object you've been keeping in the foreground of your awareness to float gently into background awareness and just allow the mind to be as open and spacious as you can, holding in the landscape of consciousness, the sounds of the present, the physical sensations of the present, noting if you feel comfortable or uncomfortable physically, noticing if the mind is jumpy, settled, spacious, or claustrophobic and tiny, constrained. The general state of being that you're in, there's no right or wrong state to be in. But it's good for these practices to have a sense of what one's baseline state is. Now, see if you can bring to mind an experience from adult life where you felt overwhelmed, you wanted to stand up for yourself, fight back, state your needs, take an action. But for whatever reason you found that you couldn't speak or act, you felt a sense of immobilization, Or a situation in life where you simply want to be able to speak or act, but for some reason there's just a feeling of losing one's voice, losing one's ability to act. Just hold that experience in your mind. And while you hold the experience in your mind throughout this practice, keep your out-breath very long, your stomach very, very soft and pliant, your shoulders relaxed. So long out-breaths, soft belly, holding a time where you felt defenseless, overwhelmed, unable to speak or act, say or do what you needed, a triggering situation for you. If nothing comes up, just bring up an unpleasant situation where you just feel in some way trapped. Now, whenever you're ready, let go of the adult situation and ask the emotional mind to bring up older memories, whatever comes up naturally, spontaneously, without any control, older memories of times where you felt powerless, incapable of acting,
taking care of yourself, overwhelmed. And just see whatever images come up. And while these images come up, just relax the out-breath, the belly. Remind yourself you're in a safe space. Keep the shoulders relaxed. And see if you can access any older, buried, exiled images. And if any images appear and you feel sad or angry, that's fine. That's healthy. Integrating our wounded experience requires allowing ourselves to have emotional responses. But keep the breath and the belly soft, all the areas of the freeze response relaxed. If no images come up, just prime them with when have I felt overwhelmed, abandoned, When have I needed help but didn't get it? Anything to activate images stored deep in the recesses of the mind, buried images waiting to be reintegrated and reclaimed. Really focus on any images and finally, if you can connect with painful or emotionally wounding images from the past. The most important part is to summarize them in a very simple, authentic, true statement. Something along the lines of, I was abandoned I was abused, I was mistreated, I was hurt, I was 
something that creates a meaning for this these images not to blunt or get rid of the emotional experience but just to begin to know how to express this experience, own this experience, convey this experience to others so that we no longer feel alone with these memories. So letting go of any images and just bringing to mind in the area where you hold images in your mind, an image of yourself at a time in your life where you felt vulnerable, in need of support, whatever age spontaneously comes up, whatever image spontaneously comes up holding this image of yourself just offer a very simple statement I care about you I care about all of your suffering I care I won't abandon you I won't push you away I care about you, I care about your healing. I will protect us. So at this point we're going to begin the transition the meditation and the goal especially is to bring any of these feelings or memories in to the rest of our lives so we don't want to when the time comes to simply open our eyes and look around the room which will simply lead to physiological suppression of our feelings so when you hear the sound, just first look at the ground and see if you can bring whatever feelings or state of being is present into 
integrated into the external awareness, 